Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Today, we're so excited to welcome to the show one of the most inspiring women we've had the chance to speak with. Allison Levine is a polar explorer and mountaineer who has completed the Adventure Grand Slam, which entailed climbing the seven summits and skiing both poles. What made you want to climb Mount Everest? All right, it's kind of a funny story. So I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. And when I was younger, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. So I'd read these books and I'd watch these documentary films about these really cold places. I think because it felt like an escape from the oppressive Phoenix heat in July and August, you know, where the temperatures can get to over 120 degrees. So I'd read books and I'd watch documentary films, but I actually never thought I would go to places like that because I had some health challenges growing up. So I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. And I had my first surgery when I was 17. I had my second one when I was 30. I had one more when I was 44. But after my second heart surgery, this light bulb went on in my head. And I just thought, okay, hang on. If I want to know what it's like to be this guy, you know, Reinhold Messner, who skied across Antarctica all the way to the South Pole, you know, 600 miles, then I should go to Antarctica and ski the 600 miles to the South Pole. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the mountains instead of just reading books about these guys or watching documentaries about them. Why can't I go out there and try these things myself? So that's kind of how it started, just from a childhood you know, interest in these remote extreme environments. So I actually, though, didn't climb my first mountain until I was 32 because I had to wait until um, after my second heart surgery. So, yeah, so that's kind of how it started. So I climbed my first one when I was 32 and I'm 55 now. And, you know, the passion has not died down yet. So it's been a couple decades now. Did you spend a lot of time outside as a child, as a teenager in your 20s? Not so much as a child because you just want the air conditioning right when you're <laughs> when you're growing up in Phoenix you know my childhood dream I always thought that I wanted to be an air conditioning repair woman as my career when I grew up because I thought high demand and job security you know in Arizona so that's what I wanted to be so um so I didn't spend a ton of time outdoors because most of the year it's really hot, but I really didn't become super active until after my second heart surgery. So take us back to your childhood. What was it like for you growing up? Did you see your parents taking a lot of risks? So I grew up in a very tough love household. My mom had this whole mantra about no whining, no crying, no complaining, right? So that's kind of the the attitude that she wanted us to take. And in some areas of life, it's really served me well because in really difficult circumstances, I can see, you know, I, I can see the sunlight coming through the clouds. I can see the silver lining. I'm going to get through whatever kind of tough situation I'm in without whining and without complaining. But on the flip side, you know, sometimes there are times where you need to call attention to yourself and you 
need help in certain things. And I grew up kind of afraid to ask for help and wanting to not call attention to myself. So that's why, you know, I was born with this hole in my heart and I didn't get properly diagnosed until I was 17 because I was afraid to tell my parents about it because I didn't want them to think I was complaining. You know, they, they talk about these like helicopter parents. I always joke that I had space shuttle parents where I know that they loved us, but they just seemed to be operating well above. You know, they weren't really paying too much attention to what was going on with the kids. So my mom just kept saying, you're fine, you're fine. So I just kept trying to convince myself that I was fine, but my health was deteriorating. And then finally, when I was 17, I lost consciousness and the friends that I was with at the time had the good sense to rush me to the emergency room where I was diagnosed with this life-threatening heart condition. So that's when I had my, my first surgery. How did your mom react to that? My mom felt so guilty. And I loved every minute of that, of course. So they- <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first expedition? So you're, you're in your 30s. And what happened? Right. Okay. So I'm in my 30s. And after my second heart surgery, so the first one was not successful. The second one was. And that's when this light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, okay, if I want to know what it's like to be in these remote extreme environments, then I should go instead of just reading about them or watching documentaries about them. So I made plans with two girlfriends to go to Mount Kilimanjaro because that's a mountain that you don't need any special skills or training or special equipment for. And so I had these plans to go with two girlfriends and I was really excited. I didn't own any of the warm clothing that I needed. You know, growing up in Arizona, I just didn't have a lot of warm clothes. So I borrowed all of the gear and equipment that I needed, except for hiking boots. I bought my own hiking boots because I knew I needed those to be comfortable. And I borrowed a backpack, a fleece jacket, a Gore-Tex jacket. I borrowed everything I needed. And Two weeks before we were supposed to leave for Kilimanjaro, my girlfriends decided that they wanted to go to Club Med in Cancun instead. And and I thought, I do not want to. I had no desire to go to Club Med in Cancun, only because growing up in Phoenix, I you know, warm weather was not a big deal to me because I had that all the time. And I wanted to do something to celebrate my newfound state of, of health, good health. And so I wanted to do something that would really force me to get outside of my comfort zone and push myself a little bit. And Kilimanjaro is not a a difficult mountain. Thousands of people climb it every year. But for me, it was a challenge because I'd never done anything extremely physical before. And I wanted to feel uncomfortable. You know, Kilimanjaro is pretty high. It's over 19,000 feet. And so you feel the altitude. You feel uncomfortable. And for me, it was an important trip to do because... I wanted to do something that made me feel uncomfortable. Did it make you feel uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. It did make me feel uncomfortable. But for me, it was a life-changing experience. Again, not because it was particularly difficult in the skill level-wise, what, what it requires to climb. But for me, I remember on summit day feeling really sick to my stomach from the altitude, feeling like I was going to throw up and thinking, okay, I'm not going to be able to go any further, but... So I'm not going to make it to the summit. But before I turn around and quit, I'm just going to take one or two more steps and see if the view looks a little bit different just from a couple steps from where I am. So I took a couple steps and then I thought, okay, I know for sure I'm going to turn around, but I'm just going to take a couple more steps. And I took a couple more steps. All right. Before I turn back, I'm just going to just take a couple more steps. But I know I'm not going to make it because I really feel like I'm going to throw up and I really have a bad headache and I know I know I need to turn back. And then before I knew it, you know, just taking a couple steps, a couple more steps, a couple more steps, 
eventually I found myself standing on the top of the mountain. And it was a great lesson for me because I learned that even when you feel incredibly uncomfortable and even when you feel fear about what lies ahead, about the unknown, you can always take one more step, right? And that's how you get to the top of any mountain, you know, literal mountain or figurative mountain. You just have to take one step at a time and everyone can always take one more step. And so for me, that was kind of a pivotal moment because I realized that the way you get to the top of any mountain in your life is just to keep taking one more step. What about your your dad? What was his reaction when you started taking these expeditions, even from the first one, from Kilimanjaro? Because I know you say it's not that hard, but for a lot of people, they're like, I don't know, that sounds dangerous. Well, my dad, he's kind of an interesting background because he was an FBI agent. So he, um, he was actually an FBI agent in the 60s under J. Edgar Hoover. And he was the first special agent to ever publicly speak out against Hoover and the Bureau against speak out against all the crazy things that J. Edgar Hoover was doing, all the illegal things that he was doing. But at the time, Hoover was so powerful that nobody wanted to touch him. Nobody wanted to investigate him. And my dad, you know, basically gave up his career in the Bureau to do what he thought was right, to speak out against Hoover. And of course, after Hoover died, then all these government agencies started to investigate him and they realized that he was doing a lot of unethical, illegal things. And then my dad was, you know, in all these books and in Time magazine. But at the time, he was branded just a crazy person and a threat to national security. So he's really a brave guy that taught me, you know, he taught me the importance of speaking out when you see something that's unjust even if it costs you everything. And so he taught me bravery in that sense. You know, what he was doing wasn't physically brave, but psychologically, emotionally, like he was very, very brave. And so I learned that I could do things that scare me is what I learned from him. And I learned that you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can. You can be scared and brave at the same time. Because he was, you know, this brand new special agent in his 20s and was really scared to speak out against Hoover because he was so powerful at the time. But he did it anyway. So what happened between Kilimanjaro and you completing the Adventure Grand Slam? (laughs) All right. So the Adventure Grand Slam, for people listening who aren't sure what that is, the Adventure Grand Slam is climbing the seven summits, which is the highest peak on on each of the seven continents, and then skiing to both the North and the South Pole. So I think today there's about 20 people in the world who have done it. But at the time, there were, I, I think I was like the second or third person to do it. But what happened was I went to Kilimanjaro and then I really got hooked. I, I loved the experience. I loved the experience of feeling like I was really uncomfortable and pushing myself anyway. And so after I did Kilimanjaro, I thought, well, I wonder if I could do something more difficult. And then after that, more difficult, you know, more technical, you know, a a mountain that's higher with more technical skill required. And I just kept kind of working my way up to higher and more difficult mountains. And then in 2001, um, some women approached me and asked me if I would be interested in serving as the team captain for the first American Women's Everest Expedition, which was a a climb that was taking place in 2002 that was sponsored by the Ford Motor Company. And so between Kilimanjaro in 1998 and 2002, I had climbed the highest peak on six of the seven continents. And then Everest was the last remaining one for me, which we didn't get there in 2002. The first American women's Everest expedition was 
thwarted by bad weather and we were forced to turn around just about 270 feet from the top. So it was a great learning experience. And it was, you know, a mountain where I learned so much about myself, about managing risk, about facing fear, about the dangers of complacency, about how to communicate with a team when the you know what hits the fan, right? When there's just pure chaos and you're surrounded by unpredictability and, you know, shifting and changing. And how do you communicate with a team to get everybody to feel confident to move forward? So I learned so much on that on that expedition, even though we didn't make it. What was the decision like to turn around so close from the top? So an Everest expedition takes about two months. So and it's not just two months of work on the mountain. It's the months and months of training. It's the all the time that goes into fundraising and the logistics and playing the team together and working with the sponsors. I mean, there's months and months and months of hard work that goes into this before you even get to the mountain. And then you get to the mountain and you're on the mountain for two months. You're out there on the route, you know, fighting your way up the mountain and you miss it by less than 300 feet, right? This mountain is 29,035 feet and you turn around 270 feet from the top. And it feels, I mean, first of all, I felt disappointed, of course, but I felt disappointed in myself. I felt disappointed for my team. I felt disappointed for Ford, our sponsors. And it just was hard to have such a high profile failure because we were the first American Women's Everest Expedition we had a ton of media coverage. And thank God this was before social media, but we did the whole morning show circuit and the evening news anchors interviewed us and 450 media outlets followed the climb. People were doing live updates from the mountain. And then we missed the top by what feels like, you know, spitting distance. So you have to go back to all the same TV shows and talk about what happened. And it just is hard to talk about this big failure, right? We had this goal and we didn't achieve it. And then we were the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke. And it's hard not to internalize that failure. And I definitely internalized it for a while because everyone just talked about the fact that we didn't make it, right? Nobody seemed to focus on the fact that we were the first team of American women to even try something like this. It was an altitude record for every single member of the team, yet everybody was so focused on this failure. And so I would love to say, you know, it didn't bother me. We tried our best, but it really hit me very hard because, like I said, I felt like I disappointed so many people. And it took me a while to kind of process the whole failure and to really realize that failure is one thing that happens to you at one point in time. That's all it is. It's one thing that happens to you at one point in time, and it doesn't define you. And it certainly doesn't determine your legacy if you, you know, if you refuse to let it determine your legacy. And so initially, I was really afraid to go back to the mountain because I thought, what if I fail again? What if I don't make it again? Will I ever find another sponsor? Will I ever find find people that want to climb with me again. You know, what is this going to do to my reputation and within the sporting, you know, within the industry, within the mountaineering industry? And But that's when I had realized, okay, hang on. I can either spend the rest of my life wondering what if, or I can just get over this fear and I can get over this feeling of disappointment 
right? And feeling like I failed everyone and I can get past that and I can get back out there on that mountain and try it again. And if I don't make it the second time, there's a third time, there's a fourth time. I mean, no one sets the rules as far as how many times you can attempt something that's really hard. And the other thing is that I started to think about like Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, right? So anyone that knows just a little something about the history of Mount Everest will know those names. Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were the first guys to ever summit Mount Everest back in 1953. But what people don't think about is the fact that there were dozens of climbers who tried and failed before those two made it to the summit. But Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, right, the famous guys who made it, those guys had all the data, all the research, all the information from those previous climbers. So if those other guys hadn't had the guts to try it first, you know, maybe Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay would never have made it. So that's how I started looking at failure is failure is not necessarily something negative. And what I'm doing when I push my boundaries, when I try really hard things, I might be paving the way for other people to go on and achieve great things in their lives, even if I didn't have the outcome that I wanted at the time. And so I started to look at that American Women's Everest Expedition is maybe that's something that will get more women interested in the sport of mountaineering. Maybe that will get more women to actually go out to these mountains and and try them and take more risks. And maybe it's not mountains. Maybe it maybe what we did inspired women to try whatever sport or starting a company or whatever it is in life that they were feeling fearful of. Maybe what we did will help them get past that fear. Right, so that's how I changed my perspective on failure. And now for a quick break. You've talked? My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. In my best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess, the 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts a lot about the power of networking and the power of connection and relationships. How did these women find you? Because you said they asked you to be the captain. And then do you still keep in touch with them? So the number of women in the sport back in 2001 was far fewer than it is today. There weren't that many women in the sport. So we kind of, you know, a lot of us kind of knew each other. And I connected with this one woman named Lynn Preble who lived in Southern Colorado. Oh, we connected. I just remembered how we connected. So I'm five foot four. Lynn is four foot nine. And she was going to climb this mountain in Tibet called Cho Oyu. And they didn't make down suits small enough to fit people like us. And I had found this old pair of men's extra, extra small down bibs at a used gear store in Seattle one day. So Someone told her, like she was looking for a for down down bibs or a down suit or something like that. And someone connected her with me and they were like, I know another woman in the sport who's really small. You should connect with Allison Levine. So she she emailed me and she said, Is there any way I could rent those down bibs from you? Can I just pay you and borrow them? And I was like, You're not gonna pay me. Just just take them and you know, come back alive and make sure I get them back. So that's how we initially connected. And then it's just like one of those things where I started talking to people when I wanted to plan various trips. And on all my breaks from grad school, I wanted to go to a a different mountain and have a different experience. So I'd ask people, who do you know, you know, who's a woman who's, you know, fairly experienced and who you would want to hang out in a tent with? That's the thing, right? Because you're on Everest, you're on the mountain for two months. So you you want someone that you would want to spend two months in a tent with. And it's interesting when you're putting together these teams because 
You want to find the perfect mix of people who are skilled and experienced, but who are also going to be really good team players. Because you don't want to be high up on a dangerous mountain with the best, best climbers if they don't care about the team. And on the flip side, you don't want to be up there with people who are really fun and cool, you know, and have a great sense of humor if they don't have the skills to be successful in that environment. So you want to find people who are a mix of both. And like I said, back in 2000, 2001, there weren't that many women in the sport. And so we all just kind of got connected through friends of friends. And that's how the trip really came together. So what made you go back eight years later? I mean, there must have been other points during that time that you thought of going back or what was it? I did think about it, but I was so afraid of that failure again. And I i mean, I'm embarrassed to even say that that held me back for so many years, but I will say it because I'm sure there's people listening to this that have had disappointments and failures that are holding them back. And I don't think I realized how much that fear of failure was holding me back. I always had an excuse. Oh, I don't have the funding, you know, lined up. Oh, I don't, I can't take the time off of work. Oh, I have too much debt. All, you know, all of these convenient excuses. And then a friend of mine, a really dear friend of mine named Meg Brate Owen ended up passing away very unexpectedly. She was 37 years old. And I thought she was one of the bravest people I'd ever met in my entire life. And she was always trying these crazy things, riding, learning how to ride a motorcycle and riding at cross country and skydiving or whatever. Like she just seemed completely fearless to me. And she was one of the first people I saw when I got back from the mountain in 2002 after our failed Everest attempt. And I remember we had coffee in New York and she said, right, so you're going to go back next year and try it again, right? And I was like, uh, no, girlfriend, not going back next year to try it again. And she said, oh, okay, then you'll go the year after. I said, no, I'm not going back to that mountain. Well, after she passed away, I just thought, okay, I want to do something to honor this amazing woman and her courageous spirit. And so I decided to go back to Mount Everest just a couple of months after Meg passed because I wanted to do something to honor her because I was always so inspired by her courage and her willingness to try new things and her carefree attitude about failure. Well, if I try this and I'm not good at it, who cares? It's I'm going to, you know, enjoy the journey. And so I, I, I actually engraved her name in my ice axe and I went back to the mountain because I wanted to feel like she was coming with me. And I thought if I have her name on my ice axe, I'm going to feel like she's with me every step of the way. And I think, you know, we all have women in our lives that inspire us. We all have women who are cheerleaders for us. And I thought, well, even though Meg isn't around anymore, I felt like she was always my cheerleader. So I, even though she wasn't around physically, I felt like she was with me in spirit. And that kind of gave me the courage to go back because I thought she would be so disappointed in me if she knew that I wasn't going back because I was afraid to fail. So that was kind of what motivated me to go back again in 2010. And Allison, I don't know if you know, but Meg was a very dear friend of mine in college. She was my college roommate. And so she used to be a very big part of my life too. And wow, yeah. So when I read your book, I was like, it was eerie because I didn't really realize that until, yeah. Yeah. It's funny because when we started this podcast, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if Sam would have known Meg at Harvard. 
Yeah. Wow. She's so amazing, right? Wasn't she just like such an incredible spirit, like the spirit she had about her? So one of the things that struck me about reading about your second attempt at Mount Everest was that you this time weren't part of a team. And so your reaction really was so different. Can you share that with us? Oh, I'm glad you asked about that because it really clarified to me what a team is. So before my second attempt on Everest, so, okay, so as you know, in 2002, we were the American Women's Everest Expedition. We went to this mountain as a team. We were sponsored by Ford. We were climbing as a team. In 2010, when I went back, I was one person on a permit with eight other people. And I just assumed, okay, this group that I'm with, this is my team. But what I learned is that just because you're doing something with a group of people at the same time, even if you all have the same goal, it doesn't make you a team. It just makes you a group of people doing something at the same time. And I think that's really different from being a team. And I think what makes the group a team is when the people involved care as much about helping the people around them achieve the goal as they care about achieving it themselves. And I really missed that sense of team camaraderie that we had in 2002. When I went back in 2010, there were some people in the group that were really good teammates, but there are others that seemed to be very self-involved that didn't seem to care too much about helping the people around them. And in their defense, they didn't sign up to be a team. They signed up to be, you know, they signed up for a permit spot, you know, to climb the mountain. But to me, it should be automatic that when you see somebody who's having a tough time, you stop and you ask what you can do to help. And I also really learned that just a few kind words of encouragement shared with somebody who's struggling can completely change the outcome of a situation, right? I would argue it could completely change somebody's life. And I I missed that sense of team camaraderie when I went back in 2010. And I learned that I don't ever want to be in a remote extreme environment with a group. Uh, I want to be with a team. I want to be with people who I know are looking out for me. And of course, I, I would be looking out for them as well. And it was just a hard way to learn that lesson. So what was it like when you returned? You, you talked about a letdown. Yeah. So I think because I had internalized this failure from 2002 and had so much like emotional buildup to going back in 2010 that I expected when I got to the top of the mountain that it would just be the greatest feeling ever and all this emotion and all this hard work and everything this is it it's this is paying off I finally did it and I didn't feel like that at all I got to the top of the mountain and I looked around and I thought, okay, well, we actually didn't even have good views that day because we also had bad weather in 2010 on summer day. But I just remember feeling like, okay, this is it. It was felt a little anticlimactic. And I think the reason it felt that way to me, and I, I, I have friends that have summited that to this day will say, this was the greatest day of my life. And these are people who have been through, you know, the birth of a child, you know, they've been married, you know, there's other 
days that certain people think are important in their lives. And these people were saying standing on top of that mountain was the best, most important day in my life. And for me, I just felt like, okay, I'm just standing on top of a really tall pile of rock and ice. That's all this is. This is a really tall pile of rock and ice. And here I am standing on top of it. And I realized that standing on top of that mountain it doesn't change anything, right? It, I didn't feel like it was going to change me. It certainly wasn't going to impact the world in any positive way. Um, and I realized that this thing that had haunted me, you know, this this goal that haunted me for so many years really wasn't important after all. Now, that said, what was important was, of course, the lessons that you learn along the way, right? When you're fighting to get up there. And so I was really glad that I went back the second time because I didn't have to always like wonder what if, you know, what if I went back because I knew what I knew what if I knew what that what if was. But I was grateful for the experience because I realized that you have to push past the point of being uncomfortable sometimes when you when you have set these goals that feel like they're going to be a ridiculous hairy stretch. You have to learn to keep pushing when it feels really uncomfortable and that that it's okay. And I think the the crazy thing is on, on the mountain, the higher you get on the mountain, the closer you are to the summit, but the more uncomfortable you become because the higher up in elevation, you know, the worse your altitude headache is going to get, the more sick to your stomach you're going to feel. So you know, as you get closer to your goal, you're going to feel worse and worse and worse. What are some of the lessons you've taken away from your other expeditions? We've really focused on one a lot, but you've done so many things. And the thing to me is that like you keep doing it and they're really hard. And so like what what do you keep learning? What keeps driving you to go back and do more and seek other adventures? For me, I just love to learn. And even when I go back to mountains that I've already climbed, it's still new because sometimes the route is different, the team is different, the weather is different. I mean, I can go back to the same mountain multiple times and it feels different each time. So for me, I just like learning and just also reminding myself that I can I can keep going even when I feel like quitting, right? Because you, you can always take one more step. So you've been able to really parlay these lessons into lessons you've taken back to the business world and you've become one of the top corporate speakers in the world. How did that happen? You know, it's funny. I ask myself the same thing. So I it's I'm represented by one of the world's largest bureaus. It's called Kepler Speakers. And in 2019, the CEO told me that I surpassed Jim Lovell from Apollo 13 as the number one speaker in the 35 year history of the bureau. So I'll tell you, there's a couple of things. First of all, I think the key is when when you're on stage. So delivering a good talk is just one part of it. But when you're on stage, you got to remember, it's not about you. It's about the audience. And so the story can't be about you. It has to be about, about them. And what are you going to deliver to them? This is my mindset. I think, what am I going to deliver to them that's going to make them feel like they were glad that they just spent that hour with me or 45 minutes or however long it was? Because time is our most valuable resource. You're never going to get that back. And I want people to walk out feeling like, oh my God, I'm so glad I sat in on that presentation. There's nowhere else I would have rather been than in that room with Allison Levine. So before every speech, that's what's going through my head. What am I going to deliver to this audience so that they feel like there's nowhere else they would rather be? So that's part one, right? It's just, and feeling relatable to the audience. And because I remember being in corporate America, being on the audience side of it, and I would hear some speakers, maybe an Olympic athlete, which is amazing to be an Olympian, but 
I would hear the stories about from the time I was six years old, you know, my family moved me here so I could train in the Olympic Village and I was super disciplined and I worked out four hours in the morning, whatever, trained four hours in the morning and trained four hours in the evening and only ate these things. And I had a nutritionist and I had a coach and I had, and, and that's really admirable, but I'm sitting here thinking, okay, like I'm just trying to get through my day in my cube every day without murdering the person sitting across from me. So I just can't relate to any of that because I didn't have this training, you know, all this stuff growing up. And so I kept in mind, like, I want to be relatable. I want people to know like, I'm not an elite athlete. I'm just a person who, with this passion, who puts one foot in front of the other, right? I'm, I'm never going to be the best and the fastest and the strongest. So I have trouble relating to people who get on stage who say, I am the best. I was the fastest. Oh, I was the strongest. Because I'm like, that's never going to be me. So I think being relatable is one thing. But the other thing is just... It's the extras, too, that you do when you're a corporate speaker. I remember early in my career when clients would call and they'd be like, hey, I know your speech is until 2 p.m., but can you come down for the 7 a.m. breakfast? And I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm thinking like I need to sleep. Like I'm going to pass on breakfast. And then my agent would be like, yeah, Peyton Manning went down for the breakfast, you know, and, and you said no. And so realizing like doing those extras and making sure the client knows how important they are to you because I'm thinking – I just, I really need sleep so I can be my best when I'm on stage. But what they hear when I say, I don't want to go to breakfast, what they hear is, oh, I guess we're not that important to her. And so just being the person that says yes, being the person that makes sure that the AV team and the production team feel appreciated and realizing, you know, it's, again, it's not about me. It's about everybody else that's here. So I think that um, that helps. But also, I mean, you have to be able to tell your story in a way that people can relate to. So that's part of it, too. But I feel like we all have a story to share and you can never get it wrong when you're telling your story. Right. If it's your story, no one's going to be like, Sam, like that's not what happened to you that day in junior high. So (laughs) it's your story. Tell it in the way that feels authentic to you. And if you're that person, I think it will resonate well with the audiences. But I also think keeping a sense of humor is important. And now for a quick break. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today 
and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And a lot of people want to be signed by a speaker's bureau, but you were signed by one of the top ones. Was it easy? How did you do it? So I had been trying for about a year to find representation from a speaker's bureau, and I wasn't having any luck. So it was after the first American Women's Everest Expedition, and I was approaching these bureaus saying, I'd really like to be out on the speaking circuit, and here's my story. And they would say, okay, so you tried to climb Mount Everest and didn't make it. Like, uh, lots of people have done that. And they said, we we actually represent people who have have climbed Mount Everest. So we think that's a little bit of an easier sell than trying to sell someone who didn't climb Mount Everest. And so I I was cold calling bureaus. I was trying to meet with them in person because I thought maybe if I can get in front of them, I could convince them. But bureaus just kept saying, we don't meet with speakers that we don't represent. And I'm thinking, well, if you don't meet with me first, how will you know if you want to represent me? And then how, you know, it's just the, the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken. I was like, how does this work? And nobody was willing to talk to me. And I finally, I called Kepler speakers and they had heard of me because I'd spoken at this um, Forbes executive women's forum. And somebody from there called Kepler and said, we just heard this woman speak. Can you get her for us? 
And so I had had one interaction with them. Like they called me to get my information, but they never followed up or anything. So I called them and I completely lied and said, hey, I'm going to be in the D.C. area, which I wasn't. But I said, I'm going to be in the D.C. area. Can I just stop by for five or 10 minutes and say hello? And they said, sure, you can stop by. I mean, we love to hear from new speakers. So come on in. You can stop by. So now I'm like burning all my frequent flyer miles to buy a plane ticket to D.C. to pretend like I you know, was going in there. And so I studied up on every single agent. I got online. I looked at all the agents' profiles. I mem- memorized something about each one of them. So when I walked in that conference room and shook their hand, oh, hey, Elliot, are you going to horse races this weekend? Because I knew he liked horse racing. And somebody else went to University of Maryland. So I shook his hand. I was like, hey, Billy, like go Terps. So I knew something about every single person that I met. So I thought, okay, this this will help me. And then I gave them my pitch. And Jim Kepler, who was the head of Kepler Speakers, said, oh, you know what? That was that was really good. I, I think we could you know, maybe do some work with you. And I thought, oh, great. And I really got my hopes up. I thought, oh, I nailed it. You know, I crushed it. And then I never heard from them. And months and months and months went by, not a peep from them. And then finally, I get a phone call from their top agent at the time, this guy, Gary McManus. And he called and said, um, Hey, Allison, Gary McManus from Kepler. I think you were in our office about nine months ago. And I said, yes, yes, yes. And he said, I have this opportunity for you that I think you would be perfect for. And I said, oh, great. You know, tell me about it. And he said, well, before I tell you about it, what are the chances you could get yourself to Vegas before tomorrow morning at 7 (laughs) a.m.? This is like a Wednesday evening. And I was like, um, and he said, yeah, he said, we have 5,000 people at this conference in Mandalay Bay. And the speaker for tomorrow morning, he said, it's the final day of the event. And the the keynote speaker in the morning just canceled. And so I think it was about 6 o'clock Pacific time. And there was a 10.30 p.m. flight that could get me to Vegas. And I said, well, there's 10.30 flight. I can get on that. You know, I can be there by 12.30, be at the hotel by 12.30, 1 a.m. And he said, great, book the flight, call the client. Tell the introduce yourself, tell them that you will be there. And I said, great, great. So I'm super excited. It's like my first chance, right? My first chance to actually get on stage. So I call the client and I said, hey, Jeff, it's Allison Levine. I'm going to re- be replacing your speaker tomorrow morning. Uh, can you just give me a- an idea of what you want me to focus on in my speech? And he goes, I don't give a F what you focus on. I just want my audience to not be pissed off that Carolyn Kepsher is a no-show. So Carolyn Kepsher, if people remember, if you remember the show The Apprentice, which was really big back in the mid-2000s, you know, Donald Trump's show, right? And Carolyn was the executive vice president of the Trump organization, right? She was, And she was the one in the boardroom with him on the show, the one with the short blonde hair. And so it was a hit show at the time, and she was supposed to be the this keynote speaker on the closing day and he's like i don't know i just want to be not be pissed off that carolyn's a no-show i'm like okay got it so get to the hotel by about one o'clock in the morning and i stayed up the whole entire night and i crafted this presentation around being a clutch player and what i mean by being a clutch player is being the person that people know they can count on being the person that comes through when they say they're going to come through, being the person that always delivers when they say they're going to deliver. So I stayed up the whole night. I did not go to bed for one minute. 
And I crafted this presentation and then I photoshopped Carolyn Kepscher and Donald Trump into my slides. And I had the year fired video and and also so I I get there in the morning and I do the presentation. I end up getting a standing ovation and the meeting planner comes up to me afterward and he goes, okay, he goes, first of all, when did you put together that presentation? Because I know you got here at one o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, I stayed up the whole night. I haven't gone to bed for one minute. I've been up since since I arrived. I, I didn't go to bed at all. I worked on it the whole night. And he said, I can't believe you would do that. And I said, of course I would do that. You were counting on me. You had 5,000 people in this audience that were counting on having a good speaker. Of course I would do that. He goes, okay, who are you? And he said, no offense. I've never heard of you before. I want to know why no speakers bureaus have ever recommended you to me. He said, because you just got like the biggest standing ovation. And, and, um, and so I just came clean and I said, well, Jeff, I'm not anyone anyone's ever heard of. Like you, there's no reason you would have heard, heard of me before. I said, and I got to tell you, I've been trying to get on these speakers bureaus radar. I've been trying to get them to pay attention to me for close to a year. And I can't even get anybody to return my phone calls. And he said, I book more speakers than any meeting planner in the country. And I'm going to call every speakers bureau that I have ever worked with and tell them what you did here today. And he did. And he got on the phone and he called every major speakers bureau. And then my phone's ringing off the hook from Washington Speakers Bureau and leading authorities and Harry Walker. I mean, everyone's calling. And so he really helped me launch my career. And from that time on, I was super, super busy. And the lesson for me is that I want to share with people is that you need to treat every opportunity as if it could be your one big break. Treat every opportunity because you could, you know, you, some people could maybe go into that situation and be like, look, I'm the last minute replacement. The expectations are going to be low. You know, I'm sure whatever I do, they're going to be, it'll be fine because they know I just, just got in at one o'clock in the morning. I mean, what do they expect of me? But instead I just wanted to over deliver and treat it like it could be that big break that I was waiting for. And, and it was, it was that one big break. And then uh, then the next year, I was super busy and have been busy since. But it, the funny thing is then I ended up signing an exclusive contract with Kepler Speakers. Okay, it's time for our speed round, Allison, where we're going to ask you quick questions and you can give quick answers. What book are you reading right now, Allison? Right now, I am reading a book called Roar by Michael Clinton. And it's all about how to roar into the second half of your life and realizing that middle age is like a new, you know, a new lease on life. And it's never too late to create a new life and create a new career and try new things. And it's really inspiring me to look at the second half of my life as like just the beginning. What's the next adventure you're going to tackle? Oh, the next adventure I'm tackling is um, I'm working on a documentary film. It's a first for me. I've never worked on a documentary before, but it's about the first female Sherpa to ever summit Mount Everest. And she was an amazing role model. She uh, unfortunately died on the mountain, but um, she broke through a lot of barriers. So it's working on that documentary right now. What is your morning routine? My morning routine is to wake up and cuddle with my dogs. I have two Labrador retrievers and starting the day with a dog cuddle to me is just the best thing. Like no matter what happens during the day, I got that dog cuddle in. It's all going to be okay. 
What was the last personal challenge you experienced? The last personal challenge I experienced, I would say, um, I think probably mm, just dealing with the fact that we're all so remote with COVID and feeling super disconnected with people who are important to me and then feeling like I haven't done what I need to be doing to help take care of other people because I feel like I've been kind of inwardly focused. So for me, that's been a challenge, something that I've had to grapple with and think about and how to be conscious of the fact that even though we're all dealing with our own challenges, we need to make sure to continue to reach out to other people who are important and put the time into those relationships. So that's something I regret over the past year. I feel like I've been too inwardly focused. And now we'll go to Lou for our male perspective. In my research, it was very brief. I didn't see any kids. You know, traditionally, extraordinary women like you exist as moms. <laughs> you know? Dog mom doesn't count? I mean, it no. kind of does. I'm just kidding. So... I'll tell you a little bit is um, both my parents suffered from extreme, extreme mental illness. And my dad is bipolar and has been controlled on medication since he was 40. My mom suffered from extreme depression where she didn't want to get out of her room every day until the kids like we got up, got, you know, got ourselves dressed and got ourselves off to school. And so I think as a child, like with two parents, I like that suffered from mental illness I felt like the parent a lot of the time. And so when I got to adulthood, I kind of felt like I needed a break from parenting. And I just feel like I've been parenting my whole life trying to deal with my both my parents' situations and their diseases, their illnesses were very, very different and manifested themselves in different ways. But by the time I became an adult, I just thought, I'm tired. I'm kind of tired of parenting. And so maybe I can take all the love and passion and good energy and put it into other areas, right, instead of um, being parent. And I'm so glad you asked that question because I think a lot of people wonder, but they don't ask it. And I'm glad you asked it because we need to talk about this stuff and we need to talk about mental illness. I know, Sam, you and I both just watched that, the Marty Fish documentary breaking point, which was amazing. But when I was growing up, people didn't talk about mental illness. And so I was like, why doesn't my mom come out of her room? Why doesn't she turn the lights on? Like, what is going on? And, you know, as I got older, I realized what was going on. And it just felt like a lot to take on as a kid. And so by the time I got to adulthood, I'm like, I'm tired. I am tired of parenting. And so I'm just gonna, I need a break from it. And I just thought I've learned all these amazing lessons about resilience and courage and determination. And maybe there's ways that you can share your wisdom and insight with the world without it having to have your own kids. So I'm really glad that you asked that question. Amy, I could have listened to Allison for hours. Like, I mean, there were so many things I know we both wanted to ask her that we never even got to. Oh, I know. Like, I wanted to ask her more about her personal life outside of the expeditions and all of the amazing things she's done. Like, does she have a personal life? I mean, I'm sure she does, but like, we didn't really get to touch on that. And I think, I mean, it's really hard when you talk to somebody who's taken on these monumental challenges. Like, it's just hard for someone like me to even understand it. Didn't you run a marathon, Amy? I've run a few marathons, actually. 
But like, that's not like summiting Everest. (laughs) But to me, it's similar. Like I have no desire to run a marathon or climb Mount Everest. So the fact that you've run marathons seems like you're closer to being her than I would ever come. (laughs) But you were a division one tennis player. So to me, like that is like this grueling endurance adventure that lasted for years and years and years, right? Like we've all done very hard things, but I just think with Allison, like it's like the hardest thing for me to understand, Sam, was that she didn't start doing this until she was in her early thirties. Like that is wild. I know she's like the Julia Child of, <laughs> of of climbing. I mean, I did find when she talked about her childhood, especially when you asked about like her dad. I mean, I thought it was really fascinating because it, it reminded me of reading Andre Agassi's Open, and you realize like Andre Agassi would not have been a champion if it weren't for his abusive father, really. And it made me think like, would she be this? this adventure Grand Slam person if she didn't have parents who were so tough. It really is interesting how how so much of our childhood and our environment shapes who we become. I mean, it does, right? Like, it's everything. It stays with you forever, which is something that we should do an entire podcast on. Yes. I mean, I also just don't want to leave without mentioning her speaking career, which is extraordinary. I love that story about how she got herself to D.C. to have that meeting with her Speakers Bureau, and then how she, you know, you and I are very similar to that in terms of the 5.30 at night. If we got a call at 5.30 at night saying, there's a huge opportunity, can you be across the country by 7 a.m.? Like, you and I are probably the only people I know who would immediately say yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was... was completely thinking the same thing when she was telling us that story. I was like, yeah, Sam and I would do that. (laughs) Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. 